Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Won't you grab a Bible and open it to Mark, Mark chapter 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. Well done for coming to church. I know God doesn't have favorites. But if he did, you guys would be <clears throat> firm favorites of his. <clears throat> I think the world is divided into two kinds of people. People who love days like this, we blame people like you for this weather. And the rest of us who wonder, is God angry with us? <laughs> Why? Where's the sun gone? Will it ever shine again? Yeah, I'm in the latter group there. So we are in Mark 14. <clears throat> just want to give you a, a reminder. If, you, if you've been here every week, you'll know um, where we are, where we're one week away from the end of our journey through the Gospel of Mark. What we've been doing, I think since January, is going through the last week of Jesus' life. It's taken us like three months to do a week of his life, but we are now um, closing in on the final hours of his life today, and then Friday and Sunday, we'll be dealing obviously with the resurrection on Sunday, the crucifixion on Friday. Um, but that's where where we are, just to orientate you that even though we've been going through all of these accounts, they're all really condensed into, into a matter of days, even though it's taken us months to get through it. These are days, and now we're into hours of, of consecutive things. What was preached last week, the betrayal of Judas, is, these are all just hours, almost minutes apart from each other. Um, sometimes you can lose the feel of it when we, when we spend months going through a book. You realize like what we've been doing the whole of this year has really just been a week of, of Jesus' life, and we get to... Um, a crucial uh, a step in the story now as Jesus is being arrested and he gets dragged before the Sanhedrin. And so we're going to read it uh, from Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're reading from verse 53 through to 65. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest, high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah? the Son of the Blessed One. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. 
Let's pray together. Father, again, as we come, as we come to your word, we, we pray as we ask every week that you would, you would teach us, that you would even now send the Holy Spirit amongst us to open up our eyes, to see, open up our ears, to hear, our hearts to receive, that the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of, of revelation would reveal more of the glory and the wonder and the majesty of who you are, that you would speak truth to our hearts this morning that desperately need to hear the voice and the truth from the God who loves us and cares for us and keeps us. And so we pray now that you would, you would teach us, that you would give us grace to receive from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if any of you have ever been um, falsely accused of anything. Uh, I, I was racking my brains as I, as I went through this, and I can only remember one account of being false. Well, actually, I can remember a few. One is sort of humorous. I got fired uh, when I was working at a jewelry store. I got falsely accused of theft because uh, I failed a lie detector test. Not because I'd taken anything, but I was so stressed out. If you've ever taken a lie detector test, it's quite a stressful exercise. And it's supposed to be accurate, but it's not because I hadn't stolen anything. Scouts honor. I actually had not stolen anything. Borrowed something from the jewelry store, but it's actually it's a very long story. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. <laughs> Talking myself into into guilt here, I was innocent and I failed, and I got fired. And I remember walking away from the jewelry store, having been recently fired, and thinking, "This is a new low in my life." That I'm like now, <laughs> I, I'm a Christian. They knew I was a Christian. I was very vocal. I'd been only a believer for like a year, and I was I just want to tell the whole world about Jesus. And I told the whole world. and then I got fired for theft. And I, it felt like a new low in my life, and it took me a while to shake it off kind of thing. And that was Natal Wholesale Jewelers. Does anybody remember them? They went under. You've never heard of them again since, so yeah, anyway. But being, being accused of something when you haven't done it uh, is, is, a, is a disorientating experience. And some of you may have had more severe things than that. That was, that was not a, a massive deal in my life, and I did manage to shake it off quickly. But uh, when I have been accused of other things, that some have, been, some have been true, but some have not been true. And they can hurt. And especially the closer they get to you, and the people who accuse you of things that you are not guilty of, and hold those and maybe share with others and paint you in a light, it, it is not something that you can easily um, get through. And here we, see, here we see Jesus freshly arrested and dragged before the Sanhedrin, the ruling the most powerful people in the land, and falsely accused of a whole bunch of nonsense. But this all has to happen. If you're, if, if you're taking notes, are, are all over the place this morning, but there are a few things that I want you to see. And the one is that God is able to use the injustices of men to accomplish His purposes. Uh, things that happen in, in your life, that you thought were a great injustice and a deviation from God's plan, actually were the means to God bringing about in His sovereign will what He wanted to accomplish. God is able, to, I don't remember who said it, but God is able to draw the straight line with a crooked stick. God is able to use the misadventures of men and the evil that's planned 
in the world and even sometimes against you to accomplish his purposes. You would have wanted it done differently. And yet God, in his kindness and his sovereign power, is able to bring about exactly what he wants to happen. God wanted this trial to happen. He wanted it recorded for us here because there's things for us. To, I want us to look briefly at what this, what this trial is and then two things that are incredibly important for us to see in the story. The first thing to note is that this is not actually a trial. Um, I think as South Africans, we're quite used to legal proceedings. It feels like there's always somebody on trial or going to trial or, or trying to avoid a trial or, or something. Uh, we're quite familiar with how legal proceedings sh should work because many of our leaders find themselves in precarious situations. Or I don't know how else to put this. Um, so we're familiar with these things. This is not a trial. This is a witch hunt. This is an illegitimate witch hunt. And uh, Mark, Mark explains it to us. He says, they're trying to find a way to put Jesus to death. They're not honest inquirers bringing Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Okay, let's hear from this. Let's hear from this. Let's weigh this and see if this guy is guilty. They have decided already in advance they want to kill Jesus. They want to have him put to death. Now they're trying to find a way to legitimize their desire to have him killed. But they go about it in the most bizarre way. This is not how things happened. Things were actually quite uh, orderly uh, back then, especially with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a body of 71 men, the high priest and another 70 men, and they met in this place called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. It sounds like something from the Lord of the Rings. Um, and it probably looked like something from the Lord of the Rings. It was carved into the side wall of the temple. Um, you can imagine, that's why it's called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. It's, it's cut into the side wall of this massive uh, structure of the temple. And that's where they met. And they adjudicated cases in the Chamber of Hewn Stone. They needed to do that there to avoid things like this happening. This is, I mean, sort of like a kangaroo court. This is like mob justice. Somehow in their desire to have Jesus put to death and to concoct this nonsense against him, in the middle of the night, somehow they've managed to rustle up the whole Sanhedrin and get them to the high priest's house. You, you don't read his name in Mark's account, but Caiaphas, the very powerful, long-serving high priest at the time, they all assemble at his house. Um, and they're putting Jesus on trial, not where it should happen, but in the middle of the night, under the cloak of darkness, as it were, so that maybe the whole crowd would have risen up and, and defended Jesus. He had, he had a powerful um, following, some who had recognized who he was and loved the miracles and seen, and others who were just interested. There were a lot of people in Jerusalem at the time. But the venue of this trial makes it illegitimate. The timing of it makes it illegitimate. They weren't allowed to do this the day before a Passover festival. They weren't allowed to have trials uh, the days before feasts. You weren't allowed um, to do this. You weren't allowed, the Sanhedrin weren't allowed to gather. And if they issued the death penalty, they had this, these checks and balances in the Sanhedrin that if they issued the death penalty, they met again the next day to confirm their decision, just to ward off a rush of blood to the head kind of decision. So they had that built in. You don't see that here. You don't see that. Just he's like, what, what is our verdict? Yes, they all agree he deserves death. And off he gets marched and dragged off to Pilate the very next thing. And he's dead 
the afternoon that this is happening overnight. Before the end of the afternoon, Jesus is being crucified. So even according to their own mechanisms for justice, this is absolutely illegitimate. For capital cases deserving death, you needed two witnesses whose story agreed together. I mean, we all know about witnesses and corroboration and all that kind of stuff. So they need at least two witnesses to say the same thing in order for somebody to put, be put to death. And you see in the story, Mark is at pains to say, these witnesses all come in, and they, the Greek word here is pseudo. These are, these are play-play witnesses. They run enough people to try, and, but they can't even coordinate a, 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 a witch hunt. Even the, the stories are not, are not making sense. It's like, this guy's saying this, this guy's saying this. The witnesses, it says, Mark says, they don't agree. And so on the basis of that, they're able to issue a death penalty. Everything that you see here is absolute nonsense. Jesus goes to the cross illegitimately, according to the mechanism there. But again, again, this is what the Father wanted to happen. And he, he uses this this sham, this witch hunt, this fake trial to accomplish his ultimate purposes. This is the toughest day of Jesus' life. This is the toughest day. Of, I don't know if you've had tough days. This is Jesus' toughest day. And what I want us to spend the rest of our time looking at is what gets Jesus through this day. What is it that gets Jesus through? I'm not saying... You know, sometimes it's tempting to read ourselves into the story. Say, when Jesus faced the trial, you know, be, like, be more like Jesus. Do these kinds of things. Uh, that's not the kind of approach. But I do want us to see things that got Jesus through this. Uh, because the story just reads for itself. And as we progress to Pilate and stuff on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday, we'll be diving more into the details of the story that everyone knows very well. But there are things that I think stand out for us, in, particularly in, in Mark's account here, that can serve us really well as we look at the life of Jesus. What gets Jesus through the toughest thing that I think gets Jesus through the toughest day he's ever faced is prayerful dependence. Prayerful dependence. Remember, we've gone through it over a long period of time, but remember, where does he go to before he gets arrested here? He's praying in the garden of Gethsemane. An agonizing uh, prayer wrestling, as it were, with the Father. We're led into some of the conversation. Jesus thinking, if there's another way for this to be accomplished, let's, let's try that. But he knows there's not another way. He has to go through this. There's an agonizing prayer. But there's a strengthening of Jesus in his praying that gets him, that gets him through this. Jesus, uh, and, and Gethsemane is not like a, a, a one-hit wonder. Sometimes I think we can be tempted to see that, and you read the stories like Jesus is about to face the cross. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like wrestling through, but God settles him, and, and, and he's now strengthened and empowered to get through the toughest day. This is just Jesus' life. He lives a life of prayerful dependence. When you, when you read Luke 5, the last verse of Luke 5, Luke 5, chapter 16, describes Jesus as it says, Yet he often withdrew to deserted places, and prayed. That's just the description of Jesus' life. He often withdrew to deserted places. He prayed. There's multiple accounts of the disciples looking for Jesus. They can't find him. Where is he gone? He's either gotten up early or he stayed up the whole night somewhere. He's getting alone to deserted places and praying. 
this is a man who has learned prayerful dependence over his life on his father. And it's an accumulation of this prayerful dependence that you see almost the pinnacle of this in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's about to face and go through the, the toughest day. Why am I uh, belaboring uh, this point? Because it's, it, it, we can sometimes think that Jesus endured this day as God. And that Jesus was God. And so he had like superpowers to get through uh, false accusations, beatings, crucifixion, rejection by the Father. It, but it's, it's not true. Jesus goes through this as a man. This is really, really important. Jesus is the God-man come together. But he goes, he lives life, and he suffers as a man. And he is strengthened by the Holy Spirit as a man to live the perfect life as a man in our place for us. There needed to be a perfect, a perfect life lived so it could be in our place. And Jesus lives it not as God, but as a man. This is, this is really, really important. Jesus has access. Dave and I were talking about this the other day, and it blew my mind in, in fresh ways. Jesus had access to all of God's power and ability. And if he just opened his mouth, he could have commanded all the hosts of heaven to just obliterate all of his enemies, to short-circuit this plan. You know, he had the access, and he chooses not to avail himself to all of the power that he had access to, that his father could have, could have sent. He, he restrains that ability. You know, you and I, you don't have uh, that, that kind of access, that kind of ability we have to endure as humans. Jesus has access to it, and he chooses not to use it. He chooses to suffer and go through all of this as a man. And he is strengthened as a man through the Holy Spirit, empowering him and helping him, and the Father strengthening him through prayer. That's why Jesus prays. He's not just modeling for us, this would be a good idea for you guys in future generations. He is going through life as a man, and he needs to be strengthened. When God walked on the earth, that is how he drew strength, was in prayer. Friends, if you need more of a motivation to improve the frequency and the vitality of your prayer life, look no further than what Jesus prioritized in his life. When God walked on the earth, he made prayer a priority because he knew that's how you live a vital life as a human being is time together in prayer with the Father. And as he agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father strengthens him in new ways to endure this nonsense trial, the beatings, the rejection, and ultimately the, the spiritual rejection and the, and the being made sin, the weight of the world's becoming sin on the cross for us. God strengthens him through prayer. I was challenged reading something that um, Tim Keller had written a couple of weeks ago about how, um, how he um, seeks to take that verse, pray without ceasing, and apply it to his life. Because, I mean, we all know that verse says, pray without ceasing. We're like, okay, cool. Skip, you know, like, just going to keep reading because that sounds ridiculous. Like, what are we supposed to do? How, how are we going to do that? And um, he was reflecting on, 
on John Calvin's approach to this. He said uh, John Calvin advocated five times a day uh, prayer rhythm so that you could pray without ceasing. Uh, I wrote them down. to um, When you wake up in the morning, to pray when you wake up, to pray before you begin work, to pray at lunch, to pray when you have finished your work for the day, and to pray as you are getting ready to go to bed. Those five times of the day, that's what Calvin put into uh, his life to try and embody this praying without ceasing. I think for many of us, we would acknowledge to say like, you know, maybe there's days that you go through where you, you, you just forget to pray. It just doesn't pop into your head and then well, suddenly, suddenly something happens and then, then you're all for it. Um, you know, you have your Garden of Gethsemane moment. Um, it, sometimes we're only moved to prayer through crisis. It's, uh, yeah, if you have ever been on an airplane where an engine has failed, it, perhaps in this country, I mean, it's maybe happened. But uh, it, it's not hard to, to rally a prayer meeting on a plane when an engine goes. You know, when both engines are working, you'll get the nervous flyers maybe. But one engine goes, and you've got the whole plane. You can lead them all in a prayer meeting of revival. Everyone's signing up for prayer when the engines go. But in the normal course of life, we sometimes think, well, what's, the, what's the point of praying? It doesn't do anything. We're okay. We've got this covered. And yet again, we're challenged by the life of Jesus, who makes prayer for dependence the priority of his life and prays without ceasing. And I would challenge you and encourage you to look at your life and think, how can you change, tweak, modify your life so that you can apply praying without ceasing? I'm not advocating that you try to carve out an hour five times a day, you know, and you've got to pray these long prayers. But to try, to try have regular times when you check in. We now have smartphones where you can set multiple alarms. I have an Apple Watch that's got um, a, a function. This is like too much information, but it's got a thing. I, it sometimes used to annoy me, but now I find it helpful where it does a breathing thing. If you're an Apple Watch person, you'll know this, this function. And you can set it to remind you multiple times to take a break and to breathe. Uh, apparently, breathing deeply multiple times a day really helps you with lots of things. Um, but I have set it so that it reminds me to breathe, and it's a reminder for me to pray at multiple times during the day, because I forget. I just forget. I just get busy with stuff. Stuff's happening, and you know what happens. Your soul shrivels up, because you're not breathing. You're not breathing spiritual oxygen, as it were. And I want to encourage you to take stock. No one prays enough. So I don't want you leaving this morning thinking, I feel guilty. I'm a terrible prayer. We're all in prayerless anonymous yeah, non-prayers anonymous here. Like basically we're all just like, oh, I'm Doug and I don't pray. Oh, hi, welcome Doug, you know, kind of thing. Like we're all in the same boat. None of us pray enough. But the encouragement is that, well, how can, we, how can we pray more? Not so that we're achieving something and, you know, God is like smiling over us. It's that we're breathing in what our souls most need. Because we look at Jesus and you look at what he endures and it's prayerful dependence that gets, gets him through this. That's the first thing. The second thing I think you see in Jesus that gets him through the hardest day is that he is secure in his identity. Jesus knows who he is. He knows 
who he is. As for this um, trial, this witch hunt, they bring out these, these witnesses who accuse him falsely of saying he's going to tear down the temple and then rebuild it again, which is a nonsense accusation if you think about it. I mean, even if it could be proven to be true, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have been able to do anything about it because he's not building a new temple with his own or with or without his own hands in three days, and he's not going to be able to break the whole thing down. They know that, but they just they're just trying to like I said they're just trying to put him to death. So they're just throwing all kinds of nonsense at him and seeing if something sticks. But Jesus is very acutely aware of who he is and what is going on. And as they as they ask him questions, what, what, what initially happens? He doesn't respond. He keeps quiet. He keeps quiet. He lets them throw all of these false accusations at him, and he doesn't utter a word. And he knows that in that moment, in those moments, he is fulfilling prophecies from the Old Testament about him and about the Messiah because he knew exactly who he was. And I priest says, don't you answer for these men that are testifying against you, but it says you kept silent and didn't answer. If you're making notes, write down Isaiah 53, verse 7. This is what it says, speaking about the Messiah, speaking about the Messiah, the one who would come. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus is acutely aware that he is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. And as the accusers stand before him, he keeps quiet. He knows he doesn't need to answer. Because, well, he's got nothing to answer against because it's a load of nonsense being thrown at him. But remember, these are, these are the most learned men in the land. They knew the scriptures backwards. And those who had eyes to see, potentially could have seen what was happening. And known that this Messiah, if he claims to be the Messiah, they knew the Messiah in the face of affliction would keep quiet. Jesus knows full well that what he's doing, he is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. And then when he does speak, you look at verse when the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What does Jesus say when he does eventually speak? Is one reply. It has so much loaded into that one reply. It's worth unpacking it a little bit. And I want to show you, Jesus masterfully rolls a whole bunch of verses on his prophecies about himself into one reply that would have landed like a bomb. That's why, that's why the high priest tears his clothes, his robe, in grief and rage and anger and accuses Jesus of blasphemy. And they all rally against him and send him off to get crucified. The weight of Jesus' answer. Verse 62, what he started, he says, I am. That, that is a loaded term. I am who I am. This is God's covenant name for himself. When Jesus says, I am, those men are listening and thinking, that's why they accuse him of blasphemy, because he makes himself equal with God. He's standing there, ready to get beaten spat on, abused, and ultimately killed. And he is letting them know, look, you can run this nonsense trial against me, but I am. I am the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, 
the high priest doesn't want to use the name of God. They had this way of using So they have to say the name of God. So he uses the term blessed one. And Jesus replies, I am. It's all the way through his ministry. I don't know if you remember, all the way through Mark, Jesus has been again and again saying, don't tell anyone who I am. Shush, shush, I'm healing you. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Try and, you know, take him and make him king by force. He's slipping out of their grasp. He's, 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 he's veiled. His, his lordship, his messiahship, he doesn't want the whole world to know. Suddenly, now, he wants everyone to know. I am. It's a powerful answer to an honest question. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed, blessed One? I am. And they would have heard that. As, I am. There's only one who says, I am. That's Yahweh. I am. And he says, and you will see the Son of Man see of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. If you are making notes, have a look at Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The rest of Psalm 110 um, is, 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 is a semi-messianic semi psalm. Sitting at the right hand of the Father was a messianic position. And Jesus says, I'm gonna, you will see me at the right hand. Son of man seated at the right hand of power. For us, it doesn't carry quite the same weight as it would in a room. It wasn't a room in a house with 71 religious leaders who knew the scriptures backwards. Jesus is just dumping on them this truth bomb of, of who he is. And then he mentions a prophecy in Daniel 7. Daniel 7's got a lot of, Daniel's got a lot of prophecies in Daniel 7. I want to read more of the verses than just what Jesus um, quotes about himself here because this is what Jesus is alluding to when he says, and you will see um, the Son of Man seated at the right hand uh, and come in on the clouds of heaven. Um, those words, all of those men knew that this passage from Daniel 7 about the prophesied one who appears before the ancient of days. Let me read it for you. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And all of those men would have known that, possibly word for word. And when Jesus says, you will see him, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is what he's talking about. He's letting them know, look, I'm on trial here. I'm on this fake trial of yours, this nonsense. You are judging me. But let me tell you guys that there is coming a day when I will judge you. And I will judge the whole world. Because I am going to come. The ancient of days has given me dominion and glory and a kingdom, and everyone will bow and serve him. Jesus knows who he is, and so he's able to endure all of this nonsense and these false accusations because he is secure. He is standing there, and he knows what's awaiting him. He knows the brutality and the pain and the desertion of the cross that's coming within hours. But he is so secure in who he is. 
doesn't have to, you don't see Jesus jumping up and defending himself and saying, no, those accusations aren't true. You know, where's, where's some more witnesses? And he's alone there. Remember, Peter is sort of trying to watch on the side there, and he's about to deny Jesus, and the rooster's going to crow. This is all happening before that, before that happens. But Jesus is facing this all alone. He doesn't have witnesses backing him up. He doesn't have any support. He's facing it all alone, and he's not feeling the need to defend himself. All he does is answer questions, and, and he lets them know, I know exactly who I am. And you can carry on with this nonsense, but one day it will all be revealed who I am. Jesus, so secure in his identity, is able to face the toughest day of his life. And I, I want to ask us a question as we process some of this. Um, how, how secure are you in your identity in God? Because I think it's clear to all of us that we, we look to different things to bolster our identity, don't we? This is not like, a, oh, there's some people here who, who, who lean on other things um, for a sense of identity and for meaning and purpose and value and worth. This is more a case of like, we all look to other things to beef up our sense of who we are. And the call of the gospel is to call us again and again and again to uh, uh, abandon those things, to look away from them, and to look again at, at who we are uh, in God. Who we are in God. And, and I know we drum often of, of, of reading the scriptures and being in this book, but I want to beat it again and say if you have developed an, an identity that's outside of the gospel and lent on things outside of who you are in God for your worth and meaning and purpose, I want to point you back into this book because this is where you find out who you actually are. And there's nothing, there's nothing more glorious about you than what this book uh, says you are, who God says you are, who's God speaks the loudest word over your life of who you actually are in Him. That you are, that you're a child of God. This is if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, these things are not true. And you will be tempted to find and make an identity for yourself outside of God. But you're going you're gonna to stumble and flounder and never going to really get anywhere until you, 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 you soak yourself in this. This is who you are. That God has chosen you. Isn't it amazing to be chosen, cleansed, forgiven, made, made new, recreated in Christ, eternally secure, eternally secure. You can't wriggle yourself out of his hand. I love that picture. There's no, 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 not enough wriggling that you can do, wandering away, God will pursue you and keep you. As we spoke about a couple of weeks ago with Peter, that there's no guilt and shame left over you because it's been put on the cross. You can go through life without the crushing burdens of guilt and shame. Again and again and again, when you try and build an identity outside of the gospel, the, the words of this book reshape you to say this is who you are in God. And it's more glorious, it's more powerful, it's, it's more wonderful than any identity that we can gather and concoct for ourselves outside of the truth of who you are in God. And I want to call us again 
today as we get ready to spend some time celebrating communion, to look at the things that we've lent on, to help our identity feel secure and abandon those things and run wholeheartedly to God and say, God, my, the security of my, my identity is in who I am in you. And I want to return to that again and just soak my heart in the, in the truths of the gospel, that I'm yours, that I'm loved, that I'm forgiven, that I'm cared for, that you provide for me. I don't have to provide for myself. I do through the blessing of work that you've given, but you ultimately provide. You guide my steps. Your sovereign will will come to pass in my life. You work all things together for good. There isn't a, a better story that you can write for your own life than the story of the gospel and who you are in him. To share in communion this morning, I want to I want to call us away from those other identities back to who we are in Him. That we're secure in God. That as we face a new week, come what may, look, we're probably not going to face a week like Jesus faced. Definitely not going to face. And I'm not saying like, oh, yeah. you know, okay, when you're going to face a trial, these are things to remember. Pray a lot and just be secure in your identity. These are things that we build into our life. You build a life of prayerful dependence by learning to pray. And learning to lean on God in the good and in the bad so that when the waves of life wash over you, you have been strengthened in prayer. You are robust. You know where to go. God has strengthened you again and again and again. And you are strong in the midst of trial and difficulty and fire. And you are secure in your identity because you've allowed your identity to be shaped by what God says about you. Not by what you say about yourself or what others say about you. It's very easy to build an identity about over the praise of people. People say, oh, you're this, oh, you're that, or whatever. And you have all these words and affirmations in your ear. All through life, that, that's how life works. Your, your, our parents do it. We do it to our kids. My kids are in the service, you know. I say stuff about my kids, and it shapes their view of themselves. And it speaks loudly. Some of the, the, the words you heard as a, as a, as a kid shaped you, and some of you are older than others, and you can still remember, and your identity is shaped by words that your parents either said or didn't say. But this is far, far stronger to shape and to transform and to renew. And my prayer is that we would be reshaped with gospel identity and live in prayer for the penance just like Jesus on the toughest day of his life. Let's pray together as we come to God in communion. Jesus, when we look at the at the grace and the composure that you endured your final hours on earth. We're amazed again at you. We thank you that you were willing to endure all of these things as a man on our behalf. Not just to show us an example of how to live, but to secure for us freedom and life and relationship and forgiveness with the Father. 
for modeling for us prayerful dependence, Father. And we pray, we pray, Father, that you would help us this morning to be people who, who have a renewed commitment to want to be with you, to pray, to live lives that, that evidence dependence on you. You have everything that we need. You're able to empower us and strengthen us like nothing else can. And so we pray that we would take you seriously at your word, at this ongoing invitation to be with you, and that you would challenge us and convict us and woo us and win us to be in your presence, to show prayerful dependence, and that we would experience such a strengthening, empowering uh, work and presence from the Holy Spirit as we press into pray, uh, praying in time with you. Again, this morning, Father, you would convict us of the areas where we have sought to an identity for ourselves outside of who you say we are. That you would convict us through the work of the Spirit on those, on those false things where we land for meaning and purpose and that you steer our hearts again this morning back to you. We want to delight in who you say we are and who you have made us in Jesus Christ. And as we come to and remember and take strength through this meal now. We remember you, Jesus. And we remember that you gave your body willingly and you allowed your blood to be shed so that we could know you, that we could be found in you and that all of our identity could be found in you. We wouldn't have to make a name for ourselves. We would just be connected to you and all of your life would, would flow into us and recreate who we are now. And it costs you everything. And so as we eat and drink this morning, we do so with grateful hearts. I want to say that we love you, Jesus. We're so grateful for what you have done. And we pray that as we get ready to, um, to reflect and to pray and to press into time with you this week, as we get ready celebrate Easter, we pray that you would draw us deeper into these familiar accounts, these, these accounts that we know so well. We pray that you would be revealing new things of your love for us and your glory and the wonder of who you are and what you've done for us. But as we eat and drink now, we pray that as we draw near to you, you would draw near to us. That you would gently convict and that you would win our hearts back to you again, we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you.